Easter is a, a really special day because there's so many different types of people in the room. There's some of you in the room today, you kind of got roped into coming today by somebody. And you're here and you're like, ah, when is this going to be over? And is the omelet at the end of brunch going to be worth it? There are others of you, you, you've been here on Easter before and you're like, man, is there going to be anything new or different? And then there are those of you who are here that are our regular folks from Cornerstone and somebody sat in your seat and so you're just choosing to be happy that you're in a different seat this morning. One of the funny things about Easter, though, is that, that, that we're open and we do different things. Like, I know some of you who typically have space around you, like sitting next to people, you know, and that's, that's weird and different. And others of us are dressed up. I wear a suit on four occasions, Christmas, Easter, weddings, and funerals. So you hit me on one of those good days today. But one of the things about Easter is that many people grew up or were aware of kind of uh, Easter traditions around the dressing up. And so as you look around a room today and you saw people who came in with you or you passed, you might have thought something. Man, these people look perfect. They have it all together. They're so unlike me. And that couldn't be further from the truth. See, on a day like today, when we tend to wear our Easter best, we buy into a lie when the truth is actually far different. The truth is, we're all a mess. We just hide it better on Easter. <laughs> and the people around you, they're not here today because they have it all together. They're not here because they've got it all figured out. They're not here because their kids were perfect in the car. They probably yelled at them like you did. They've had moments this week of anger and angst and frustration. They lost sleep. And I had a friend several years ago, and he said, Scott, what's funny about people is that people tend to admire you for your strengths but they connect with your weaknesses. You know, there's people, I'm, I know I've met, maybe you've met, who they just have it all together. They're one of those perfect people or perfect couple or perfect family, and they're kind of like just up there in the balcony. They're hard to reach, they're hard to connect with, they're hard to even like just be friends with. But then we have people in our lives that we know are just human. Warts, scars, brokenness, and all. And those are the people that we connect with. Because they're like us. Because we have weaknesses and they have weaknesses. And for me, as I was thinking about that word of wisdom from a friend of mine years ago, I thought about me and a weakness that I have. And one of my weaknesses is that I'm a recovering cynic. You say, Scott, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that when I was 22 years old, I graduated from college and went to work for a church. And I was full of optimism and idealism. I was naive. I had this kind of positive view on people in the church. And and what I discovered was far different. All these people that I met that I was told all these great stories about, I got close to them and I realized that the stories didn't resemble the real people. They said one thing, they did another. They presented oneself in public and they were a very different person in private. They talked about being interested in spiritual things and what mattered most to God, but then I saw them care more about their honor and their ego and their own sense of control. And in that season, I became incredibly cynical. I called it the ABCs. I was angry, bitter, and cynical all at the same time. Scott, that really can't be that bad of a weakness. And, and there are places where I thought it was a positive thing. Like I told really snarky jokes and my Twitter feed was full of opportunities to me poke holes in everybody else's stuff. 
But over time, what I began to realize is this anger and bitterness and cynicism was not only eating me alive, but as I stood on platforms like this or wrote things that other people read as a writer, I was spreading this anger. I was spreading this bitterness. I was spreading this cynicism. Almost like I had the common cold and I was just sneezing in on people. My wife finally deemed it my angry face. My friend Michael showed up one day and he said, Scott, where's the hope? Because all I hear from you is anger and bitter and cynicism. And it was hard because in that season I was, I was working on staff at a church and I was supposed to be somebody who was sharing hope and believing in hope. But in that season I began to be overwhelmed by doubt. That cynicism began to cloud my perspective and it not only made it hard to relate to God, it made it hard to have healthy relations with the people. And for me, my relationships were what led to that weakness. And a few years ago, I stumbled on a message from another pastor where he shared a metaphor that just perfectly described my experience. He perfectly described what I was going through. He talked about the fact that there are seasons in your life and things you go through that create a fog within you. And what you're going through and what you're experiencing creates this thick fog that makes it hard for you to see. And in the same way, we had some fog here in the Quad Cities a few weeks ago and everybody drove slower and turned their high beams on. That fog makes it difficult for us to move. If you've ever been somewhere that's dark and cold and unknown and it's foggy, then you know how even just the fog in the air can create a sense of fear. Or anxiety. You feel out of control. And when we can't see where we're going, we don't want to move at all. And so for me, my fog began with cynicism, but your fog may have begun with something else. You may wake up every morning in a fog, having a difficult time seeing or relating to God having a hard time seeing or relating to people, having a hard time seeing and imagining the future. And if you're living in a fog today, I want you to know that that you're not alone. You're not alone in this room. You're not even alone in the pages of the Bible. Because the people in these places, they went through things that made them foggy too. Went through one science class in college. I'm really glad I didn't screw this up. But this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you about some people who found themselves in a fog and what we can learn from them today. If my clicker will work for me. So for some of us, it's relationships that cause us to move into a fog. For others of us, it's pain. Maybe for you, you're in a season of grief and loss. Maybe you've gotten a diagnosis about yourself, about somebody you care about. And that grief and loss and pain and anguish is so strong that it's like a fog that you're in where it's hard to see or experience that God's real. 
know, there's a man in the pages of the Bible who experienced that. He was a father, and his son was sick. His, his son didn't have cancer. No, he had a demon, and this demon would throw him into the fire. This demon would send him into convulsions. And the man came to Jesus, and he shared the story of his son. He said to Jesus, Jesus, if you can heal him, please do. Here's what Jesus said to him in the book of uh, Mark, right here on the screen. Jesus said, if you can... All things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe that's where you are today. You want to believe. Maybe there's a a part of you that believes, but there's another part of you that has doubt and unbelief because of the pain that you're in. And it's hard to see or believe that God is real, much less that Jesus rose from the dead. There's others of you, you are the victim of circumstances beyond your control. And those circumstances weren't things that you planned for or expected. Maybe you moved to Prescott and you had a vision of how this move and this transition and this new life here was going to go. But your life here in no way resembles what you planned. Maybe you had a vision for the relationship you were going to have with your spouse and a divorce has happened. Maybe you had a vision of your relationship with your kids or the job and career you were going to have and that looks nothing like what you're living today. And so those circumstances outside of your control have created a fog within you. There's a man named Peter. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. And one day, Peter and his friends were out on a lake and the lake was foggy. They couldn't see and they they thought they saw a ghost walking across the water. And then the ghost began to talk and he said, guys, it's Jesus, it's me. And Peter spoke to that ghost, and here's what he said, that Jesus. He said, come, Peter, come out on the water. So Peter got out of the boat, he walked on the water, and he came to Jesus. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink, and he cried out and said, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of Peter, saying to Peter, oh, you of little faith, why'd you doubt? You know, for many of us, when we're going through difficult circumstances, storms and wind, they take our perspective off of the truth and the fog rolls in and we can't see anything clearly anymore. All we can see is the things that are causing us the stress, the anxiety, the worry, and the doubt. That's why I love the Bible. It's so honest about even the most heroic people because they're just like us. Maybe it's for you relationships, maybe it's pain, maybe it's circumstances, or maybe it's just plain old disappointment. Maybe you had a picture or an idea or a hope. Maybe you believed somebody was going to be somebody different, and then the truth came out and they were not who you thought they would be. And so now you're facing the disappointment. Now you're facing the fog. Now you're going through, was I wrong? Was that true? Was I duped? Should I ever hope again? Should I just have no expectations? That way I'm never disappointed. All of those things are like a fog in our lives. And this is actually where the story of Easter begins. On the Thursday of Holy Week, the disciples and Jesus were in a garden and they were praying. And while they were praying, some soldiers arrived to arrest Jesus. And here's what Jesus said to those soldiers. I preached on patience two weeks ago and now I'm getting what I asked for. Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? 
Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And notice this last sentence. It says, and they all left him and fled. The they doesn't refer to the soldiers. The they refers to his best friends, his disciples and his followers. They ran away because they were disappointed. This was not the moment they expected. This is not the moment they were hoping for. He was going to be arrested and then he was killed and then he was buried. And none of them saw what was coming next. You might say, Scott, why the fog? Why the picture? Why these stories? Because this is the scene that is set for Easter Sunday. No one was expecting the resurrection, not even the disciples. History tells us, historically we can know, that there was no one who was expecting the tomb to be empty. You say, Scott, how do you know that? Well, because if they were waiting for the tomb to be empty, it wouldn't have been told like it was in the pages of the Bible. It would have been told like a scene out of Times Square for rocking New Year's Eve with Dick Clark. Where there's a ball getting ready to drop and people are chanting 10, 9, 8, 7, waiting for the stone to be rolled away and Jesus to emerge alive. But that isn't what happens. No one was at the tomb when he was resurrected. And the first person who showed up was a woman named Mary, and she came bringing spices to take care of and prepare his body for burial. The one person who went was looking for a dead body. Well, she arrives and finds the tomb empty, so she runs and gets Peter and John, two of the closest friends of Jesus. They come into the tomb. They look in there and go, hmm, no body. And not even in that moment do they think he's resurrected. They think that he's dead and someone's taken the body. And in in that place, we pick up the story according to John in his book, chapter 20, verse 9. Here's what the passage reads. For as they did not yet understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead, then the disciples went back to their homes. So they weren't even expecting resurrection. But Mary stayed and she stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And as she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet, And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord. Still, she thinks that that he's dead. And I don't know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing. And don't go ahead. But she did not know that it was Jesus. She was so much in the fog. She was so overwhelmed by her grief and her pain and her disappointment that when Jesus showed up and stood there right there in front of her, she didn't know it was Jesus. You go, Scott, that sounds crazy. No, it doesn't. Because some of you right now are in such pain and disappointment and depression and grief that you can't even see reality clearly. You're in such a fog. And that's the fog that Mary was in. But this isn't the end of the story. The next verse, it says, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? Now, don't go on here. Supposing him to be the gardener. And this is the beginning of the greatest joke of Mary's life. Because she and Peter and John be walking down the road and Peter would go, hey, Mary, 
Look, it's a gardener. No, it's Jesus. No, it's a gardener. It's cool. It's cool. At the end of the day, every gardener was a walking joke for Mary. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. Again, she thinks Jesus is dead, and I'll take him away. And then Jesus said to her one word. He said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, her native tongue, Rabboni, which means teacher. I find it so interesting how Jesus decides to introduce his resurrection to the world. First, he picks a woman. And in that day, a woman's testimony was not accepted in court. A woman could not own land. Her word had no value. And the reason that you were able to say he's risen today is because of this woman. So if you ever have to wonder what Jesus thinks about women, example A. And then number two, he doesn't announce that he's returned with pomp and circumstance, with fireworks and a parade. He doesn't give a theological treatise on how he came back from the dead. You know what he does? He calls her name. He says, Mary. And as soon as she heard that word, it clicks. This morning, some of you are hearing him call your name. Not explaining to you why the fog came in your life. Not taking it away. Not explaining to you all of the ways behind he came back from the dead. But calling your name. And inviting you to come home. Inviting you to become a child of God. Inviting you to believe and experience a second chance. If you don't hear anything else I say today, this is the primary message I want to share with you. That because Jesus rose from the dead, hope can rise in us. We titled today's message, Easter for Prescott, Hope Rises. Because we know that for so many of us, there have been so many things rising in our lives other than hope. So many things that we can classify as fog. And it doesn't leave because we're good people. It doesn't leave because we do the right things. It doesn't leave because we commit to be at church every day this year. It doesn't leave because we pray more or read the Bible more or give more. The reason that hope can rise in us is because Jesus rose from the dead. Our hope is not in us, in some sort of self-help, self-discipline, regimented order of things. Our hope is that because Jesus conquered the grave, he can break through our fog. He can bring clarity to the darkness. And the whole of the Christian faith, everything in the Bible... Everything we're here for today rises and falls on the resurrection. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts the stakes for this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are, of all people, most to be pitied. 
Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you're currently participating in the greatest April Fool's joke of all time. Along with billions and billions of other people across the last 2,000 years. But the reason that the disciples gave their lives, 10 out of 12 of the men who followed Jesus most closely suffered brutally, horrifically violent deaths because they refused to deny that the resurrection was real. I don't know about you, but if me and my buddies got together and said, hey, we're going to tell this story and it's a lie, and they started beating me, and they said, we're going to kill you, and all you have to do is say it was a lie, I'd give it up, as would a lot of you. What has sustained the church through a very checkered history with very great stains on our past is the resurrection. The church hasn't been sustained by good people who did all the right things. The church is still here today because Jesus conquered death. And that's what has sustained you if you're a follower of Jesus And if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, it's what can break through the fog. That no matter whether it's disappointment or pain, whether it's circumstances or relationships, whatever your fog is caused by, the resurrection of Jesus can break through it. And it can bring light to darkness and it can bring hope to your fear. That's the story of my friend Lee. I met him seven years ago, and he shared with me his story about how he had been living in fog, a disbeliever in Jesus. And I'll let you hear his story today. You can watch the screens. And when I was an atheist and legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, I would have smirked at the fact that Easter this year falls on April Fool's Day. Because back then, I thought that anyone would have to be a fool to think that Jesus literally rose from the dead. One day, my wife gave me the news that she'd become a Christian. And so I decided to take my journalism training and legal training and debunk the resurrection of Jesus. So I spent two years of my life analyzing the historical data. And what I found really shocked me. I recounted in my book, The Case for Miracles. First of all, I found that there's no dispute among scholars that Jesus was dead after being crucified. Uh, The famous atheist New Testament scholar, Gerd Ludeman, says it's historically indisputable that he was dead. The Journal of the American Medical Association says that based on the historical and medical evidence, that Jesus was clearly dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. Second, we have early reports of the resurrection of Jesus. Reports that come so quickly, you can't just write them off as being a legend. In fact, we have one report of the resurrection, including named eyewitnesses, that has been dated back by scholars to within months of the death of Jesus. Friends, that is historical gold. Third, we have the empty tomb. And I found that even the opponents of Jesus implicitly conceded that the tomb of Jesus was empty. And then fourth, We have nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. Friends, that is an avalanche of historical data. And then we have seven ancient sources inside and mostly outside the New Testament 
that confirmed that the disciples lived lives of deprivation and suffering as a result of their proclamation that Jesus had risen. Why were they willing to do that? Because they heard a rumor that he'd risen? No, because they were there. They touched him. They ate with him. They talked with him. They knew the truth. And knowing the truth, they were willing to proclaim it, even despite the suffering they endured. Friends, I spent two years investigating this evidence. And it came down to one day when I reviewed it all and I thought, you know what? Based on the historical data, my verdict is that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. And that's the moment that I decided to confess my sin, to turn from that, to receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased for me on the cross. And at that moment, I became a child of God. Some people have a rush of emotion at that moment. I didn't. You know what I had? I had the rush of reason. Because the resurrection of Jesus is not some April Fool's Day joke. It is a historical reality based not on mythology or make-believe or wishful thinking, but a solid foundation of historical truth. While historical truth is what led Lee to put his faith and trust in Jesus, it wasn't data that broke through his fog. It was the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And I don't know what fog you were in today when you came in this room. I can't promise you that when you leave that those circumstances have magically changed over the last hour. But what I can tell you is this, that when I was in that season of anger and bitterness and cynicism, when I was in my fog, the circumstances didn't change, but I discovered something that could change me and my circumstances. I recognized that I had put my hope and trust in people, not Jesus. And that's why I was so bitter and angry, because they weren't who I thought they were. But it was in that season that I began to study the resurrection and I found what Lee found and I found more that if Jesus was able to rise from the dead, then he could bring my hope back from the dead. That he could speak life into my darkness. He could cut through my fog. And that's why today I say I'm a recovering cynic. I still could go back. I still have hard days. But now I'm a person of hope. Not because I'm some sort of strong, resilient person. But because hope rose in me. Because Jesus rose from the dead. And I wonder about you. What if hope rose inside of you today? What would it look like if in the fog you've been living in, if that fog subsided? Because Jesus entered in and you put your faith and trust in him and you invited him to transform you even if your circumstances don't change hope can rise in you today because jesus rose from the dead would you bow your heads with me the seats that you're sitting in today have been prayed over 
We didn't know your name. We didn't know if you were going to be here. But we prayed that whoever sat in the seat you're sitting in, that no matter what the fog was that you brought here with you, that you'd encounter Jesus and that you'd hear him calling your name. And so this morning, before we go to whatever we have planned for the rest of today, I want to invite you to experience what Lee did, what I did, to experience an encounter with Jesus. And if you're ready for a second chance, if you're ready for hope in the midst of your fog, if you're ready to know that you're loved, whole, enough, and forgiven in spite of whatever's happened to you, you can know that today. And I want to pray with you in a moment, but I would love to know who I'm praying with and for. And so if that's you, if you feel Jesus calling your name and you're ready to put your trust in him, would you just raise your hand right now? Raise it high. Thank you. You can, you can lower your hand. And if you raised your hand or you wanted to, I just encourage you to pray these words along with me. Jesus, I'm in a fog. And I need you. I'm a sinner and I'm broken. I can't fix this on my own. I need you to transform me. I accept your forgiveness and I put my faith and trust in you. Thank you for creating me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming for me. Thank you for dying for me. And thank you for coming back from the dead so I can live. I invite you into my life and I pray that you transform me. I want to follow you. I pray that you'd lead me through this fog and never leave me alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, whether you raised your hand or not, we would love to hear from you. And you can let us know that in two ways. One, if you still have your card and you're a guest today, we'd encourage you to mark that card that you began a relationship with Jesus today when you prayed that prayer. We'd encourage you to bring that card out to the Welcome Center in the lobby. Also, if, if you want to, maybe remain more anonymous or take another route, we'd encourage you to send us a text message. If you'd open up your phone and send the words, trust Jesus, all one word, to 444-999. We'd love to come alongside you, celebrate with you, and encourage you as you put feet to this decision that you've made today. You can text, trust Jesus, to 444-999. We would love to celebrate with you that you have found hope amidst your fog. Our hope today is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in a future that's different because of us. Our hope is in Jesus. And so we're going to invite you to stand and sing this morning about our hope that's in Christ alone. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www 
PrescottCornerstone.com.